If you would, I'd invite you to turn uh, with me in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 6. As we uh, continue on in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in Genesis chapter 6 this morning. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on all the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set a door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your son's wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, 
according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Now, this morning we come to this chapter which marks the transition between uh, the opening chapters of the book of Genesis and the coming of the flood. The opening verses of this chapter are notoriously difficult, but the purpose which they serve is to close out this period before the flood and to highlight the great extent to which wickedness prevailed upon the earth. In contrast to this great wickedness, obviously, is Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord and was blameless in his time. And of course, Noah receives this command to build the ark through which the human race and the animals on board were preserved from destruction. And so as we consider this chapter this morning, we will do so under, under three main headings. First of all, don't be unequally yoked. Secondly, judgment is coming. And thirdly, the Lord saves through covenant. Don't be unequally yoked. Judgment is coming. The Lord saves through covenant. And so first of all, don't be unequally yoked. This chapter opens after two genealogies have already been given to us. A couple of weeks ago we saw the descendants of Cain in the latter verses of chapter 4, and we saw the descendants of Seth stretching down to Noah and his three sons last week in Genesis 5. And after those two lineages have been shown, we find this difficult statement being made at the beginning of chapter 6. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And then skip down to to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, we'll come back to verse 3 here later on, Lord willing. But what we have in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4 is an account of this intermarriage that took place between the sons of God and the daughters of men. These marriages took place in the period uh, that is described in verse 1 as the time in which men began to multiply on the face of the land. And so, in other words... During this period between Seth and Noah, and Noah's three sons, or we could say during this period between Cain and Lamech, and Lamech's three sons, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, that we saw in Genesis 4, sometime in this period there are getting to be more and more people on the face of the earth. Daughters are born, and this phenomenon happens, that the sons of God see that these daughters of men are beautiful, they are attractive, literally they are good And the sons of God are attracted to these women because of their physical appearance. And so they take them as wives for themselves. They pick whomever they choose, as the text says. Now, the obvious questions here are, who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? Well, historically, as this passage has been interpreted, there are a few options. The uh, most prominent today, and I would say most likely, are number one, uh, that the sons of God are fallen angels, and the daughters of men are just human women. Second view is 
that these sons of God are from the historically godly line of Seth and that these daughters of men are women from the historically ungodly line of Cain. Now this uh, first view was held by at least uh, some, perhaps a sizable amount of the Jewish community around the time of Christ. And so at least uh, some versions of the, the Septuagint apparently rendered this phrase, sons of God, as angels of God. And this view, uh, for example, was expounded in the, uh, the pseudepigraphical book of First Enoch. Now, First Enoch obviously is not a canonical book. It's not a book that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, it was a an influential book among the early Christians. And First Enoch is very clear that these sons of God were angels, that these daughters, uh, that these uh, angels married human women and that children were born to them and that these children then were giants. And uh, First Enoch goes on and expounds upon this idea. And it says that these giants were 300 cubits tall. That is 450 feet. And uh, it talks about how uh, they, uh, they ate so much of the people's food, the people got tired of feeding them, and uh, so the, the giants turned against the people in order to eat them, and uh, on and on it went. And some of the early church fathers in the second century, men like Justin Martyr and, and Irenaeus, held roughly the same perspective, at least insofar as that they uh, agreed that these sons of God were were fallen angels. I don't know that they thought that the giants were 450 feet tall and all of that, but they they did at least tend to think that these uh, sons of God were were fallen angels. But on the other hand, you also have, uh, even early on, uh, in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, there's a Christian writer named Julius Africanus who took the opposite view. And Julius Africanus said that when men multiplied on earth, uh, the angels of heaven came together with the daughters of men. What is meant by the Spirit, in my opinion, is that the descendants of Seth are called the sons of God on account of the righteous men and patriarchs who have sprung from him, even down to the Savior himself, but that the descendants of Cain are named the seed of men as having nothing divine in them on account of the wickedness of their race and the inequality of their nature being a mixed people and having stirred up the indignation of God. And it seems that uh, in general later church fathers like Athanasius, Chrysostom, Augustine, Cyril of Alexandria uh, took this later route that was, that was taken by, uh, by Julius Africanus. And so obviously the question is what should we make of this? Well, for one, I think we need to pay close attention to verse 4. Look, look back there to, to verse 4. What the text says is that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now, obviously, the first question in regard to verse 4 is who are these Nephilim? Well, the word is only used, as far as I know, here in Genesis 6-4 and in Numbers 1333. So that doesn't give us just a whole lot to go on, but the implication seems to be, especially from Numbers 1333, uh, that this term Nephilim denotes a giant of some kind. This is the way the Septuagint rendered the word. This is the way the King James uh, translated the word. And connected with this seems to be a cruelty and violence which was characteristic of them. And that, you'll notice here from Genesis 6, 
is one specific reason given in verse 11, which is connected with the coming of the judgment of God upon the earth. It's this violence that has engulfed the world. Now, verse 4, though, doesn't specifically say that the Nephilim were the children that were born to these unions between the sons of God and the daughters of men. It says they were on the earth in those days and afterwards. I think it's possible that the afterwards spoken of may in fact be in reference to the time when it was happening, that there were children born of the unions here described. In other words, I can put it another way, I think a good case can be made that verse 4 speaks of the Nephilim as something other than the children who were born to these unions. In other words, because they were on the earth before this happened, and they were on the earth after this happened, after these unions came to be. And so there are a lot of details we just don't have. I think we want to be careful and avoid an undue dogmaticism on the point. My own inclinations are to take this as the intermingling of the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. I realize there may be others who would be inclined to a different persuasion, but whatever your opinion on this may be, I trust we can at least agree on this, that these were marriages which ought not to have been. They ought not to have been. If you think that these sons of God were fallen angelic beings, and certainly they had no business marrying the daughters of men, if you think that these sons of God were of the godly stock of Seth, then they certainly had no business marrying ungodly women of the line of Cain. And so any way you would care to slice it, suffice it to say, these were unions which ought not to have been. And I think Calvin made the point quite well when he said, Moses does not deem it worthy of condemnation that regard was had to beauty in the choice of wives, but that mere lust reigned, for marriage is too sacred a thing to allow that men should be induced to it by the lust of the eyes. For this union is inseparable, comprising all the parts of life. Therefore, our appetite becomes brutal when we are so ravished by the charms of beauty that those things which are chief are not taken into account. For it is not fornication which is here condemned in the sons of the saints, but that too great indulgence of license was taken in the choosing of wives. And so let the, the point be clear. There's nothing wrong with a single man desiring to marry a beautiful woman. There's nothing wrong with a single woman desiring to marry a handsome man. Those desires are fine. But the criteria of physical beauty must never be the only criteria nor the ultimate criteria. The judgment of Samson was profoundly flawed when he wanted to marry daughter of the Philistines. In Judges 14, he said to her father, Get her for me or she looks good to me, or she's right in my eyes. He's just following, just following his eyes, and it brought a lot of trouble on him. But the words of Lemuel cast a resounding ring within your ears when he said, Charm is deceptive, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Proverbs 31, 30. How many times has it been that the marrying of an ungodly spouse has led to the downfall of those who, at least outwardly, 
are believers, those who are at least outwardly a part of the believing community, part of the, the visible church, so to speak. Therefore, we find the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, where he says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. Talking about the, the foreign nations, the unbelievers. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Isn't this what happened to King Solomon? He married these foreign women, these idolatrous women. They turned his heart away. And isn't this what happened to the Israelite community that had returned from exile? They were marrying these ungodly women. You find that in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, Nehemiah chapter 13. This has been a big problem over time. Marriages that ought not to have been. Marriages where people have been drawn into them on the basis of outward appeal, physical attractiveness, and so on. The same could be said for marriages that are based on financial considerations or some other matter of convenience. Now, it's certainly fine to take those things into consideration, sure. But marriage is something that must be based not merely on these considerations or considerations similar to them, but something much deeper, namely a common commitment to the Lord, compatible Christian beliefs, compatible Christian convictions, compatible Christian lifestyle. And therefore, we find in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that a wife is bound to her husband as, as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Those who are eligible are free to marry. They are free to marry whom they wish, but they must only marry in the Lord. And so for those of you who are eligible to be married, or for those of you who are too young to marry now, but one day will be eligible to be married, learn this lesson from Genesis 6. It matters whom you marry. There should be all kinds of things that go into your reckoning before you walk down the aisle, but this should be number one, and this should be number one by a long shot. Am I marrying in the Lord? Marriage is important, and it must never be entered into lightly. It can be either one of the greatest earthly blessings that we will ever experience, or else it won't be. And I would echo the sentiment of the Huguenot National Senate of 1563 when they gave this exhortation concerning betrothal or, in our terms, engagement. And they said, Wherefore, let the parties look before they leap and be curiously inquisitive about each other before they do mutually oblige themselves. And so if you're single, hear it from me. Marriage is good. Marriage is a blessing. But also hear it from me that you need to think twice and think again before entering into marriage. And now, for those of you who are married, certainly there is forgiveness and grace for believers who have knowingly married unbelievers, who have walked into marriage with eyes wide open, knowing that you were marrying an unbeliever. There is forgiveness and grace in Christ for those who have done that. But as you well know, this makes life complicated. And sometimes the knot gets tied under the assumption that both parties are believers, and then subsequent events go to show otherwise. 
And sometimes it happens that two people were married as unbelievers and then by God's grace one is saved and the other is hard-hearted and refuses to believe. All of these are difficult situations. And if you happen to be in one of them, I want you to know that the grace of God is sufficient for all situations, including yours. And we have explicit biblical instruction given to those who are in this type of situation. And so we find in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has uh, an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. And uh, for more specifics on that, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, where Peter gives exhortations to uh, believing Christian women who have unbelieving husbands. And so, one lesson to take away from these opening chapters of the book, or the opening verses of chapter 6, is that we're not to be unequally yoked. Now let's, let's look back there to, to verse 3. We look at verses 1, 2, and 4, but let's, let's look back to verse 3. In verse 3, we see the Lord's response to this situation that is coming to pass here when these sons of God and these daughters of men are being joined together in marriage. And the Lord says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. This seems to be the Lord's statement that he was going to give mankind 120 years to repent of their wickedness before the judgment would come. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. His spirit had been striving with men. First Peter chapter 3 that our brother Nathan read for us this morning, we found that the, the Spirit of Christ, which I, I take as the divine nature of Christ, was making proclamation, Peter says, to the spirits that are now in prison. That is, those people who had died and were dead in Peter's day, but they were alive back in Noah's day. And when they were alive and on the earth, the Spirit of Christ was making proclamation to them in those days when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And I think the idea is there that Christ was proclaiming the call to repentance through the preaching of Noah to these people who were alive in Noah's day. Now, they were dead when Peter was writing First Peter, but they were alive back then and were on the earth. And the Lord was proclaiming to them a message of repentance through the preaching of Noah. But what we find in verse 3 is that, that the Lord's Spirit striving with them it's not going to continue forever. They had 120 years before judgment was to come. And from all that we can tell, this seems to have been said by the Lord in Noah's 480th year, and as much as the flood came when Noah was 600 years old. And this brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is judgment is coming. All of this discussion in these opening verses is given to us to demonstrate the sinfulness which has come to dominate the whole human race practically by this point in history. There are these ungodly marriages that are taking place. There are these mighty men of old, these men of renown who are evidently given to violence and wickedness. 
And so we find in verse 5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We see a similar statement down in verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Things are a mess. The human race is corrupt. Even the godly who were in the line of Seth, as we saw last week, were born in the image of their fallen father, Adam. And as it seems, even those who had this godly heritage were corrupted by others through the means of marriage. The world is a mess because of sin. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like the world that you and I live in? It does. It's the same mess we're living in today. A world in which every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. This is what we mean by total depravity. We're talking, uh, we talked last week about inherent sin. Sin, as it were, clinging to us, clinging to our human nature. And again, I think, uh, I think the Lutherans expressed it well in the formula of Concord when they said original sin is an inexpressible impairment and such a corruption of human nature that nothing pure nor good has remained in itself. Inherent sin runs deep in us. It gets to our hearts, gets to our thoughts, gets to even the intents of our thoughts. And this evil is very grievous in the sight of the Lord. And so we find in verse 6 that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, when we read verse 6, we need to understand that this is, a, this is a manner of speaking. Many times in Scripture, God communicates to us something that is true about himself and his actions using language that is not strictly applicable to God himself. And so it is here. When we read that the Lord was sorry, or that it repented the Lord, as King James translated, that he had made man and that he was grieved, we have to understand that this is, this is a figure of speech. Because in the true and ultimate sense, the Lord does not repent. In the true and ultimate sense, the Lord is not sorry. This is because he has no sin or no evil of which he needs to repent. The Lord is perfectly holy. Nor does the Lord need to repent because of a lack of knowledge, or because something caught him off guard. Nothing caught him off guard. He knows everything. He declares the end from the beginning. And so in that true and ultimate sense, the Lord does not repent. As we read in 1 Samuel 15, 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And so when we read other passages of Scripture where it is expressly said that the Lord repents, we have to understand this is a, this is a manner of speaking. This is a figure of speech, that the Lord is using human terms and human language to communicate something about himself to us. Well, then what is it that he's trying to communicate to us? He's communicating that he changes his outward behavior and his methods of acting towards mankind. His will remains always the same, but his outward behavior changes based on the wickedness of people or the repentance of people. 
If you look at Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10, you can get a glimpse of what this looks like in, in practical terms. And so the Lord says there, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, or pull down, or destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better or then I will repent of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Again, it's the Lord changing his outward conduct based on the behavior of the people. Now, our brother uh, James Martin gave a great Sunday school lesson a few years back dealing uh, with this very issue on the, on the subject of, of God repenting. And it's in a series on the, the attributes of God. And uh, if you want to look back at that, the audio recording is on the church website. That was from May 5th. Uh, 2019, and I would highly recommend that if you'd like to further consider this topic about what Scripture means when it talks about the Lord repenting or the Lord changing his mind. And so what this means then is that the Lord is going to change his outward behavior toward people. And therefore we read of that change here in the text, verse 7, where the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land from man to animals and to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's the change in the Lord's outward behavior. The Lord had been patient with mankind and had put up with all of this wickedness on the earth, but the patience was coming to an end. Judgment was coming. The Lord would destroy mankind from the face of the earth. And, of course, we know from the text of Genesis how this played out. The judgment came in the form of the flood. See verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. And the subsequent narrative makes it clear how this happened. And there is a lesson here for us to be learned in the present time. Namely this, that the scripture makes it clear that these events which took place in the days of Noah leading up to the flood, run along parallel tracks to our own time. And so our Lord Jesus Christ speaks this way in Luke 17, 26 and 27, when he says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And we find Peter making the parallel also for us in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he speaks of those scoffers who will come in the last days, mocking and following after their own lusts. He says that these men will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all continues as it has been since the days of creation. But Peter continues on, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, and he says that when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The point is that the judgment that came in the flood 
foreshadows the judgment that will come at the end of time when our Lord Jesus Christ returns to judge the entire world. And there is then also a parallel that exists between this this age that preceded the flood and our present age now. There's, There's eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. These are life's normal activities. And these will continue on right up till the end. Meanwhile, there's wickedness abounding all over the place before the judgment comes. Here, in this case, the judgment came because of the violence and the corruption of all flesh, that all of the thoughts of their hearts were evil, and out of their evil hearts came evil desires and evil deeds, and so it is now as well. But judgment came upon them, and judgment is one day coming upon this world as well. And Paul speaks to us of this in Ephesians 5, uh, 3-6, where he says that immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul lists out the sins. He says, don't be deceived. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so it is clear that wrath and judgment are coming. Wrath and judgment are coming because of sin. And if we are found as sinners... Apart from a Savior, when Christ returns and judgment comes, we're going to be swept away by that judgment, just as the ungodly were in the days of Noah. And what this means is that if you've not trusted in Christ and turned away from your sin, you cannot afford to put off faith in Christ and repentance of sins until later. You can't just think, well, I'll... I'll do that sometime down the road. Down the road might not be there. There might not be a later. That day might come upon you quickly and find you unprepared and still in your sins. All of us are sinners, and all of us stand in need of a Savior. And what we find here in Genesis 6, in the Lord's words to Noah, is that the Lord saves through covenant. That's our third point for this morning, that... God saves through covenant. The picture that's presented in this chapter is certainly bleak, but as bleak as the picture is, we should notice that it's not completely bleak. Contrasted with the wickedness of the age is Noah. You see in verse 8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, he's a righteous man, blameless in his time. And this, of course, doesn't mean that Noah was... Sinless, rather, it means that he lived a consistently godly life. As, as one man uh, put it, he said that he was as perfect as he could be in this journey. We found in verse 9 that he walked with God. And in contrast to all of the, the wickedness and violence that are running rampant in the world, we have this man who found favor in the eyes of God, who was a man of faith, who walked with God. And we find out in verse 18 that the Lord established his covenant with Noah. 
Noah, therefore, in the endeavor of building this ark, was in covenant with the Lord. The Lord was going to save Noah and his family from this coming judgment, and he does so in the context of a covenant. And I think that this, uh, in this we see something important about the Lord's dealings with his people, that he relates to his people by means of covenant. He promises deliverance to his people. And this covenant which the Lord established with Noah was a covenant that Noah would be saved. The Lord had made a promise that he would save Noah, and he made good on that promise. And we also note that in this covenantal arrangement, the Lord gave commands to Noah. He gave him commands in regard to building an ark, command in regard to bringing two of every living thing onto the ark, a command to bring food onto the ark for for the, the people and for the animals. There was a promise of salvation, that he would be saved from the flood, and there were accompanying commandments that went along with it. There was, as it were, both law and gospel. This is the way God relates to his people, by covenant. And broadly speaking, in the covenants of God, he makes gracious promises to his people, and he calls them to obedience. And what we find in this case was that, yes, God did indeed fulfill his promise to save. And we also find that Noah did according to all the commandments that God gave him. He was obedient. We see that in verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. And this fact that God relates to his people by means of covenant is worthy of our reflection and that we see it all throughout the Bible. We see it here with Noah. We see God establishing his covenant with Abraham. Later on, we see the covenant at Sinai with the nation of Israel. We see the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And then in Christ, we have the new covenant. God and his people are not in a fickle relationship, but in a covenant relationship, a relationship that is founded upon the promise of God. And so Leviticus 2.13, when speaking about the grain offering, said that they were to be seasoned with salt. And the reason was, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. Now, now why salt? What's the connection between salt and a covenant? Well, salt is a preservative. Salt makes things last. And as such, salt is a, a symbol of preservation and perpetuity. And thus we find in Numbers 18, 19, that the covenant of the priesthood was described as an everlasting covenant of salt. Similarly, the Davidic covenant, 2 Chronicles 13, 5, is described as a covenant of salt. And so this, this idea of salt denotes the idea of perpetuity, the, the lasting nature of the covenant. Noah in his day, the Israelites in their day, and we today in Christ are in covenant with God. And as such, there are, there are covenant obligations upon the Lord and upon us. The Lord has promised to be our God and to save us, and we have pledged ourselves to be his people, to devote ourselves to him. And so, friend, if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, then be encouraged by this reminder that the Lord relates to his people through covenant. Again, there's this idea of the connection of salt with it, that that it's preservative, that the covenant exists in perpetuity. And the good news that is ours in Christ is this, that if 
Even the stability of the old covenant in the days of Moses could be symbolized by salt, then how much more so the new covenant reality which is ours in Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews speaks of the, uh, the better nature of the new covenant in this way in, in Hebrews 8 where he says that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second sought. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so, Christian brother, Christian sister, be encouraged today that there is a stability and a certainty in your relationship with the Lord. It's not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on your whims. Our Lord teaches us about what a covenant is, and he gives us a, a picture of that practically in the, the institution of marriage. And for those who are married and all is as it ought to be, you know what a joy and what a relief it is to be in a covenant relationship with your spouse. You know the comfort and blessing of having someone who is committed to you, committed to be faithful to you, and knowing them knowing that you will be faithful to them. In a crazy world like this, we can set our heart at rest knowing that we're in a covenant relationship with our spouse. And if that is true in any degree of human marriage, when all is as it ought to be, then how much more so in the case with our heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. If our earthly marriages are comforting and we can trust our spouse, then how much more can we trust our Lord God who has entered into covenant with us through Christ? And again, the good news of our covenant relationship with the Lord is that it's not based on our fickleness or our feelings, but rather it's based on the promises of God made certain by the blood of Jesus Christ and now sealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now we can look back and see God's faithfulness to his promises in the past. We can see how he entered into covenant with Noah. He saved Noah. We can look how he entered into covenant with David to raise up his descendant after him, give him an everlasting throne. We see that fulfilled in Christ. And so we can also rest secure in knowing that what God has promised to us in Christ, namely salvation from sin, forgiveness, reconciliation, eternal life, these things are ours. If you're in covenant with God through Christ, your sins are forgiven because of his blood of the covenant which was poured out when he died on the cross. The wrath of God which you deserved was placed on Christ and there's no condemnation for you. Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we've been born again to a living hope and so have obtained an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and does not fade away. This is reserved for us in heaven. And in the meantime, we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. And even though now we're distressed by various trials, this is only so that the dross of our remaining sin may be purged from us and that the genuineness of our faith may be manifest and found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. This is the, the blessing of being in covenant with the Lord. We have new life, we have forgiveness, we have the certain promise that God is preserving us to the end. But we also find here in Genesis 6 that outside of the covenant is judgment. Outside of the covenant is judgment. The Lord is patient. The Lord was calling to repentance. That call to repentance and salvation went out in the days of Noah, but the hardened hearts would not receive it. And the call of salvation through Christ still goes out today as the gospel is proclaimed. The call of salvation through Christ goes out. It goes out right now, here, today. And if you've not trusted in Christ, I want you to consider this, that the choice before you is simple. Very simple. You enter into covenant with Christ through faith and repentance. You believe in Him. You trust that His death is sufficient to cleanse you from sin, that His resurrection is sufficient for you to be counted as righteous before God, and you turn away from your sins, or you'll be swept away when the judgment comes. That's, that's what stands before you. Scripture says, choose this day whom you will serve. And you will either serve sin, which brings judgment, or you will serve Christ, in whom you will find forgiveness, reconciliation with God, rest for your souls, everlasting righteousness, eternal life. And as it was in the days of old, so it is today too. The Spirit of God will not strive with you forever. So pay attention while there's time and enter into covenant with Christ. The Lord saves through covenant. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we, we recognize that our hearts are described here in Genesis 6, that our hearts are, are so sinful, and yet we see also your mercy. We see your grace and favor bestowed on, on this man Noah, who is an emblem of the way in which you save your people from judgment. Lord, we pray uh, that we would imitate his faith, that we would trust in you. We pray that we would imitate his obedience, that we would turn from our sins and obey you. Lord, we give thanks to you for graciously giving us your word, graciously calling us to yourself through the gospel. Pray that you would give everyone within this room ears to hear and to heed this call. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.